Good morning, Mission View Church. Hey, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians is a book in the New Testament, if you're not real familiar. And uh, it's, it's the seventh book in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we will be at this morning. I remember it vividly. It's one of those times in your life. It is just burnt in your memory. It's etched. I'll never forget it. I just spent the night at Matt's house. It was a party for the end of our sixth grade school year. It was the very first time we went out and toilet papered somebody's house. And we didn't really understand at that time that you needed a lot of toilet paper in order to accomplish the job. And so we all snuck to the basement where his mom kept a giant supply and took one roll. And we thought, oh, we're just setting the world on fire. And we went and we toilet papered somebody's house, if you could call it that, when six people have six rolls of toilet paper, it probably took six minutes to clean up. And uh, we snuck back and we watched movies and we stayed up late. And then the next morning, Saturday morning, my dad came and he picked me up. And on the car ride home, all of a sudden I look over and the window that I have next to me down starts being rolled up with his automatic control. And I just kind of look at it. And all of a sudden, the sports talk that we were engaging with and talking to one another about gets turned off as my father reaches over. And I don't know if this is true or not. I, I can't say with, with certainty, but I feel like he just reached over and turned off the air conditioning as well. And then he took his eyes off the road for a second, and he looked at me, and he said, Son, you're going to start to notice some changes and I felt like I was a prisoner of war. I felt trapped. And I felt like I was beginning to be tortured. I did not want to have this conversation with my father. This was awkward. The windows were up. The doors of the car were locked. The sports talk was turned off. There was nowhere for me to go. I contemplated jumping out of the car, which was traveling approximately 40 miles an hour, but I don't think I could have made it. And so I just decided to sit there as my father began to tell me that there would be some changes going on in myself that I would notice. And he started saying, your mother and I, and when those words came out of his mouth, I didn't want to know where this was going. And so I just stopped him. And I said, dad, I know all about that. We don't need to have this conversation. And he would deny it to this day, but I swear to you, the look of relief on that man's face when I said that sentence, it was that look of, good, I didn't want to have this conversation either, but your mother's making me have this conversation with you. Now again, he'll deny that to this day, but that's the look in his eyes that I recognized even from that very early young age. And then he just said, well, son, and I just shut him down again. I'm like, we're not even going there, dad, no. No, no, no. I'm okay. I've finished sixth grade. I've got it figured out. And he said, well, if you ever have any questions. I said, I won't. He said, but if you ever have any questions, I just want you to know, you can talk to me. And then the sports talk came back on, and I was allowed to roll my window down. And I felt like for the first time in a span of what was probably only 90 seconds, but felt like an hour and a half, I felt like I could breathe. And my panic attack was ceasing quickly. You know, I look back on that, 
And it still scars me a little bit to think about. But I look back on that, and I'm just so thankful. I'm so thankful that God gave me godly parents and, and somebody, a dad that I got to grow up with in the house, and somebody who was willing to just talk to me about sex and about puberty and about all the changes that, that happen and go on. And, and so, parents, I just want to challenge you. If you're here, be, be that source, because your kids are hearing about it from everybody else, and they're hearing a lot of messed up information. And and you may even learn a thing or two from them. You never know. So be willing to have that conversation, all right? And, and I'm just so thankful, so thankful that, uh, that I had a dad who, who was willing and, and open, and we had that awkward 90-second conversation. And we didn't really ever broach it much beyond that uh, because I just uh, refused. But, but what we see as we look at 1 Corinthians 7 is we see part of, part of being human it's just part of being human. You're going to have questions about sex. You're going to have questions about these things. And, and the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in, in Corinth, part of, his, part of his letter to the church in Corinth here in 1 Corinthians is him answering questions. And so this morning we jump in in 1 Corinthians 7, and here's what we find. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, concerning the matters about which you wrote. So a lot of things are going on in the church in Corinth. And what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks is, is we're going to look at just, just a, lot of, a lot of dynamics about sexuality, about marriage. We're, we're going to look at all kinds of relational dynamics. And what I find so fascinating is that the Apostle Paul here, he starts answering their questions, and he starts with this question. Because it's a foundational question, and it certainly must have been largely on their minds. And, and so he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now let's, let's unpack that and let's understand what the Apostle Paul's talking about here. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now you read that and honestly, some of you might be like, oh, I feel freedom. But understand if you're within the marriage context, this is not talking to you. All right. This verse is designed for those who are single, and we'll unpack that thought in just a couple moments. All right. But here's what you need to understand: that being single, being single, is a good thing. Being single is a good thing. Paul writes, "It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman." Being single is a good thing, and when you're single, understand this, regardless of the message of our culture, regardless of what you may believe, if you're single, sex is not for you. Now, a recent GQ article entitled, How the Tinder App Became a Success, tells us this. That fall, his relationship of two and a half years finally ended, and Eli found himself single again. He was 27 years old. He wanted to have sex with some women, and he wanted some stories to tell. Classy guy. That was me adding the classy guy disclaimer. He updated his dating profiles. He compiled his photos. He experimented with taglines. He downloaded all the apps. He knew the downsides, but he played anyway. He joined every free dating service demographically available to him. So that's Eli. Around the same time, somewhere across town, a woman named Catherine shut down her OkCupid account. 
She had approached internet dating assertively, had checked the box that read short-term dating and the one that read casual sex. Then a casual encounter had turned menacing, and Catherine decided she no longer wanted to pursue sex with total strangers. But she had a problem. She liked the adventure. She had the usual human need for other humans. And she needed the convenience of meeting people online. Catherine was 37, newly single, with family obligations and a full-time job. Most of her friends were married. She needed something new. When Catherine and Eli downloaded Tinder in October 2013, they joined millions of Americans interested in trying the fastest-growing mobile dating service in the country. Tinder does not give out statistics about the number of its users. The only promise Tinder makes is to show you the other users in your immediate vicinity. Depending on your feelings for these people, you swipe them to the left, meaning no thanks, or to the right, meaning yes, please. Two people who swipe each other to the right will match. Your matches accrue in a folder, and often that's the end of the story. Other times you start texting. The swiping phase is as lulling in its eye-glazing repetition as a casino slot machine. The chatting phase, ideal for idle, non-committal flirting. In terms of popularity, Tinder is a massive and undeniable success. Whether it works depends on your idea of working. On October 16th, Eli appeared on her phone. He was cute. He could tell a joke. She swiped him to the right. Eli, who says he would hook up with anybody who isn't morbidly obese or in the middle of a self-destructive drug relapse, swipes everyone to the right. A match. So that's the standard of our culture for being engaged in sexual activity. As long as the partner isn't morbidly obese or suffering from a drug relapse, let's hook up. Let's have sex. This is, the, this is the idea. This is the idea that we're surrounded with in our culture. Now, I understand the church is different, thank God, and it should be. Now, the church's attitude towards singleness is interesting as well. And whether you intend to or not, whether you even realize it or not, you may play a part in the church's culture towards singleness. I didn't get married until I was 27 years old. I was 27. By Midwest standards, I was past my prime. By California standards, I was a baby. So, you know, that's just, that's just the... I went to, a, went to a Christian college, and how dare I graduate without being engaged? I was an anomaly. I wasn't normal, and I was perfectly okay with that when I saw many of my options at the Christian college, which I attended. I just... I, was, I wasn't going to settle. I wasn't going to jump into something I didn't feel passionate about, and yet I was looked at as though I was... Oh, it just, uh, he's interesting. He's, there's something wrong with him. Is he gay? Why wouldn't he marry somebody? What, what's this thing? So within the, within the church, within Christian culture, whether, whether we even realize it or not, we, we perpetrate a stereotype. And that is that if you're not married, something's wrong with you. Now, I believe the majority of this comes from a good place. And I might, I might be naive in that understanding, but I believe the majority of that comes because the majority of people within the church, not everybody, but the majority of people within the church try to keep God at the central, 
of their life, God at the center of the life, God is the center focus of their marriage, and consequently they have what they would term as a successful marriage, they're happy, and they want other people to enjoy that happiness. I don't think it's a malicious thing for people to look at people who are single and think, oh, I've got to get them hooked up, but that's what they do. And I can't tell you the number of times that somebody would approach me or that I've seen somebody else in the church approached who's single, somebody well-meaning and with great attentions pulls them off to the side and says, you know, I really think that you should see so-and-so. Why is that? Because they're single. And? They're single. Oh, okay. So we're both single. We're not compatible. We're not, you know, there's nothing about that person that interests me in a romantic relationship with them, but they're single and I'm single, so why not? Let's go out. And that's sometimes the mentality of the church. And you'd look at this thing and you're like, nobody in their right mind would have thought that this was a great match. Why would you do this to me? Why would you want me to endure this? And don't worry, the other person's thinking the same exact thing about you. And they would be horrified if they knew that the person was coming and talking to you about the relationship as well. So here's the challenge. Because even within the church, there's this subtle thought that if you're single, it's not okay. There's, there's something better for you out there. Oh, you know, in your perfect time, God will just lead to you your perfect mate. And what I want to tell you is this. There's a very real possibility. There's a very real possibility that God is calling you to go through your life single. And that is okay. It's okay. Embrace it. Church, I want to challenge you. Don't be those people. You, you've got well-meaning intentions, I know. But don't be that person who walks up to somebody who's single and lies, I was in your shoes. I was single. And as soon as I came to the place in my life where I was comfortable being single, God led my spouse into my life. Don't do it. Just stop. You mean well. I understand that. But marriage is not God's plan for everyone. It just isn't. And that's okay. That is okay. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Singleness is great. Singleness is okay, but it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. And it may not be for you. And if it isn't for you, then what God's plan is for your life is to find a mate and be committed to that individual. If singleness isn't for you, that is God's plan. That you find someone, you, you join your lives together, and you are explicitly theirs. This thought is now developed. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. I'll read that again. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. 
Understand this, church. Sex is not, it's, it's not a privilege. It's not to be a negotiation tactic. Sex within the bonds of marriage here, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, is a right. Brian, you chauvinist. How dare you? That's what God's word says. And I wonder, how often in marriage do we get it wrong? How often do we see sex as, as a privilege or as a negotiation tool? And we don't come out and say, well, if you do the dishes. Get a little bit of this later on. I mean, we don't come out and explicitly put it like that. But is it subtly there? Your conjugal rights. Now, let me be very clear. This is not a biblical mandate to rape somebody. This is not a biblical standard that just you get all the sex you want anytime you want it, wherever and whenever you are. No. We have to interpret this as we interpret all of Scripture within the context of everything. So let me challenge you. Notice where Paul starts. He starts with the husband. Why is that? Because God has placed husbands in a position of leadership. It doesn't mean that they're over their wives. It doesn't mean that they're better than their wives. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything along those lines. But what it means is that within the marriage, there needs to be order. And God has established the husband as the head of the household, as the leader. Just as, there is, just as there's order within the Trinity of God the Father, then Jesus, then the Holy Spirit. It does not mean that... that that any one is greater than the other. They are all fully God. And yet there is order within that design. And here within the marriage, there is order. Husbands, you are to be the head of the household. You are to lead. And I will not apologize for saying that. And so husbands, I want to challenge you in the same way that you are to give your wife her conjugal rights. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. You set the tone, men. You set the tone in your house. And if you set the tone in your house, I promise you this, if you lead your wife in the way that you should lead your wife, if you protect your wife in the way that you should protect your wife, if you die to your own desires and elevate your wife's desires, if you put her needs and her desires above your own, I promise you this, you will have a happier home and you'll probably see a little bit more on the conjugal rights front as well. Husbands, it starts with you. Lead well. Follow the example of Jesus. Cherish your wife. Hold her in high regard. Give yourself up for her. Love her. You set the tone. And you serve her. And wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And I understand in our culture there's all kinds of ideas about submission, and it's kind of a dirty word, and, and there, there have been abuses, admittedly. But we need to get beyond that, and we need to go back to a biblical understanding of what this really means. Submit to your husbands in the same way you submit to the Lord. And you're like, whoa, I don't know, Brian. Are you supposed to tell us that? 
Well, Ephesians 5.22 does, so I'm not. I'm just telling you what Ephesians 5.22 says. Submit to your husbands as you submit to the Lord. And I promise you, if this dynamic can be played out in your relationship, it will lead to a happier relationship, it will lead to a healthier relationship, and it will lead to a more sexually active relationship. Just understand that sex is not a privilege. It's not a negotiation. It's a right within the marriage. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you just because of your lack of self-control. Wives, your body is your husband's. Husbands, your bodies are your wives. All of this is Brooks. All of this. I know. She's an incredibly lucky woman. On our, on our wedding, she looked lovingly into my eyes, and she wanted to work this part into her vows that she would own my body. I, I said maybe we should go a little bit more traditionally, and we should not include that part. Okay, she didn't say that. I had thought that for a moment, but she shot that down rather quickly and went, no, we'll stick with the traditional vows, Brian. You're a freak, and everybody's going to think that if you say that. <laughs> my body is not my own. It's my wife's. My wife's body is not her own. It's, it's mine. Understand what's going on here. You see, marriage... It's all about sacrifice. It's all about sharing. It's all about the uniting of two becoming one. And so often what happens is, is you go to a wedding and we, and we see the unity candle and it's very symbolic. But so often what happens is as time goes on, as troubles come within the marriage, as, as you just grow accustomed to one another... What happens is the symbolism of that unity candle starts to fade a little bit. And selfishness creeps in. And we don't see ourselves as one singular unit. We start to see individually. And the biblical guide for marriage is that we get rid of that individualistic nature. And we come together in a unified capacity, in a unified role, where we become one. The interests of the husband and the wife no longer are separate. They are one. They are unified. They are together. And we see this frequently in the three, in the three biggest areas of trouble for marriage. We see this in money all the time. We see it in sex. We see it in communication. The husband has one idea. The wife has another idea. And rather than just hammer out those differences and get on the same page where there's openness and honesty, there's secrecy, there's agendas, there's elements that are held back. And what is joined together as one, if we're not very careful, 
begins to separate his two agendas, his two ideas, his two perspectives. Fight to be one. Fight to be one. And that is this whole idea. That my body is my wife's. My wife's body is mine. We are one. Paul gives one, one possible exception. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So notice, before we go any further, there needs to be a mutual agreement on this. There needs to be a mutual agreement... And what is the purpose? Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So what does this entail? Mutual agreement means that there is what? Communication. Communication. Talk about your sex life with your spouse. Have an open and honest dialogue. Mutual agreement requires communication and for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. What's the exception? That you spend that time and you pray. This, this hint, this, this must be arrived at from mutual agreement, and then it's, it's got a very specific purpose, and its purpose is prayer. So if you're not praying, you're wrong. And if it's not mutually agreed to, then if you're married, get back with it, because that is what Scripture tells us, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Understand this within the context of your marriage. Sex will be a sanctuary for your relationship, or it will be a source of separation. It's that simple. Sex will be a sanctuary for your relationship or it will be a source of separation. Fight for your relationship. Talk about it. Get on the same page. Elevate one another's needs above your own. This is what healthy sex looks like. And this is how God designed it. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. And so Paul talks about the context of marriage, and now he switches back and he says, I'm just letting you know, I wish everybody was as I am. Single. It's a gift from God. And yet so often the mindset of being single is oftentimes exactly the opposite in our culture from what the Apostle Paul just, just said here of it being a gift from God. Gallup conducted some survey a year and a half ago. And from 18 to 34-year-olds, this is what they found. 28% of 18 to 34-year-olds, 28% 
were currently married. 56% of them were never married but wanted to get married. 9% never married and did not want to get married. And 7% had either been divorced or, or widowed. 35 to 54-year-olds, 65% were currently married. 12% never married and want to get married. And 3% never married and do not want to get married. Notice the difference in those statistics, and some of it can be attributed to when you're dealing with 18 to 34, 18 is incredibly young to be married in our culture today, I understand that. But notice the, notice the jump in the statistic from 18 to 34, from 34, or excuse me, from 35 to 54. 18 to 34, currently married, 28%. 35 to 54, currently married, 65%. And this next, next statistic is even more telling. Never married and want to get married, 56% from 18 to 34, and only 12% from 35 to 54. Now, I think what's going on there is there's just some maturity. I think what's going on there is people are getting older, they're getting married. I think what also is going on there is people are settling. They reach a place in their life, they want to get married, they start to notice their options are getting fewer and fewer. All the people that they dated and broke up with are now married. They're sad about it. They won't tell you that they're sad about it, but they're crying their eyes out on their wedding day, and then they're looking at all the pictures on Facebook with rage in their hearts, and they're like, oh, the one that got away, or oh, I know we were a terrible match, but maybe it could have been. And, and then what happens is you just you start to see the pool grow smaller and smaller and smaller, and you can settle if you're not careful. Listen, if you're here and you're not married, don't settle. Don't settle. I know that our culture has a message for us. I know that even, even within you, it, it, there's times it just gets lonely. Oh, there's times it just, Friday night is miserable. Saturday, you won't go out to dinner. So it seems like everybody you see at, at dinner is just happy and in a relationship. And when you walk up to the host or hostess and you're like, table for one, they just get that look on their face like, oh, what's wrong with you? And you feel that and you're like, ah. Oh. Don't settle. Listen, it's always better to be single wishing you were married than married wishing you were single. It's always better. And it may seem like something you really dreamed and wanted and, and prayed about is never going to happen. And you know, it might not. It might not. Maybe God has another plan for you. Maybe God's got something else in store for you. I want to challenge you to get to the point where you would be all right with that. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean there isn't going to be soul searching involved. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. But I want you to be open and willing to maybe just today start that dialogue of, you know, maybe I'll accept that. If that's what God has in store for my life, don't settle. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that 
it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, not everyone, not everyone, but, but a kind of a predominant idea amongst some older generations as things were much better uh, in their day, that things were pure, it was an, a better time, it, it was a, a more pure time, that there was more, more restraint and, and that they, and then they look at our generation as though they had nothing to do with it. They just wash their hands of it. And not, certainly not everybody, but they look at the generation of, of today and they just bemoan it and say, oh, it's terrible and we don't know how you got this way. But they talk about it like they had nothing to do with raising this generation. And I want you to know that this problem is not unique to young singles. Last week's New York Post had this article. Forget worrying about being single at 30. Paula Paulette is going to be 80 in April, and she's online dating. And she's not just looking for someone to eat ice cream and play bingo with. The last thing I want is a platonic male companion. I would love to find another soulmate, or at least another man I have chemistry with. Paulette was widowed at 70 after a very happy marriage of nearly 50 years. Now she's looking online for potential partners, and she's got plenty of options. In April, Stitch.net, a Tinder-like dating app for the over 50 set, launched, and it's set to debut a local New York section next month. Like Tinder, it shows users just one profile at a time, and it alerts them to profiles where a person they've liked has liked them back, so they're less likely to reach out to someone and be met with silence. Paulette is looking for more than just companionship. I have known great joys in my life, children and grandchildren, she says. But the greatest joy for me was being in love with a man who loves you back. Now, understand that sometimes, sometimes people reach a point in their lives where their spouse dies, and yet the desire within them does not die. And Paul here is saying, that is not wrong. That's not wrong. It's not wrong for you, if you're, if you're a widow, to, to remarry. It's perfectly acceptable. He says it probably would be better if you remain single, but in the same way, if sexual temptation is going to lead you down to this path, then by all means, certainly marry somebody. To the unmarried and widows, I, widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It is okay to remarry. If you're widowed. Now we continue. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. This is where it gets really tough. Because marriage is made up of two broken people. It doesn't matter the communication. It doesn't matter the sex life. It doesn't matter your handle on money. We are all still incredibly flawed individuals. And in the context of marriage, what that is is it's an invitation for all of my flaws to be on constant display with somebody whose constant flaws are on constant display, and it leads to a lot of tension, and it leads to a lot of strife, and it leads to a lot of issues that need to be 
worked out. But Paul says, just as Jesus said in Matthew 5, the wife should not separate from her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. I know that some of you right now are in a rough spot. And your spouse is by all accounts a jerk. And honestly, the communication isn't there. The handle on finances isn't there. Your sexual relationship isn't there. And there's all of these tensions at play. And you're torn, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I want to challenge you, no matter what, try to work it out. Try to work it out. We too frequently see divorce as a, as a business transaction. All right, well, things aren't working, so I'm out. What I find incredible is that throughout the dating relationship, we see flaws of the person, and we're quick to push those aside. We're quick to, we're quick to just fight through them. And, and we, just, we, we just love that person, so we're, we're quick just to, just to keep going. Our love will prevail. And then the switches flip. And when we're married and there's no escape, those same flaws in the person that were there, we're no longer quick to push aside, but they become a huge source of strife. And so what I want to challenge you, if you're dating, if you're dating, you need to work on those issues before you get married. And maybe the mentality that you have dating of, oh, no matter what, I love this person and, and we're going to get married, that needs to go. And if there are red flags, you need to work on those red flags before you get married. And if you're married, this whole idea of, well, things aren't working out, so we'll just be done, that needs to go. And divorce needs to be a last option. And it needs to happen only, only in issues of marital unfaithfulness or abandonment that we're going to see here. I know this is difficult. But if you do divorce... She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. And so some have been divorced, and, and really they're for reasons other than biblically. And I would just challenge you stay single. Stay single. Oh, this gets incredibly messy, and this gets incredibly difficult. And life is incredibly messy and incredibly difficult. And this isn't meant to be a, a complete theology on divorce this morning. Rather, we're trying to look at the larger picture, the context of marriage. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
Now, we've got a whole number of issues we need to work through here very quickly. All right, Paul says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. Now, the explanation that Paul's giving here is not that this is any less scripture, but he's rather pointing back and he's clarifying that Jesus in Matthew 5 spoke very, very clearly about adultery, but he didn't go into all the dynamics of the relationship, similar to how we're not going into all the dynamics of divorce and relationship this morning. Jesus just said, you know, unless, unless adultery happens, don't get divorce. And so Paul adds this qualifier is saying, you know, I, I'm just throwing this out here. It's still inspired. It's still from God. But if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should stay in that relationship. Keep the relationship together. Why? Because then there's this whole discussion here of, of holiness. Now understand the holiness discussed here is not salvific in nature or else the individuals wouldn't be identified as unbelievers. What's being talked about here is the experience of grace a believer should bring to all relationships, should be evident and displayed to their unbelieving spouse. See, this is, this is how we should conduct our lives as believers. We should be constantly full of grace. We should constantly be, be treating that person as we talked about earlier, that husbands, we lead our wives and we lead our wives by setting the tone and we die to our own interests and we die to ourselves and we elevate the needs of our spouse. And wives, you submit to your husband's authority as you submit to the Lord and the grace that is displayed there when believers operate in the way that they should is an incredible and powerful testimony to a person who doesn't know Jesus. There's all kinds of family dynamics as well anytime divorce happens. So it needs to be seen as a last resort. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? And next week we're going to finish up looking at 1 Corinthians 7. But what do we, what do, we do with this? First, I want to caution those of you who are single. Don't settle. Don't rush. Don't run into something because you feel like your options are running out. I want to especially caution you if you are dating somebody who is not a follower of Jesus. You need to end that relationship. I know you love him or I know you love her. I know you think the world of them. But I promise you this, you are setting yourself up for heartache and trouble. And it's going to be really, really, really difficult for you to pull the plug and end that relationship. But it's not going to be as difficult as it will for you to be in a relationship with you a Christ follower and the other person not a Christ follower and your constant flaws on constant display. And so I'm telling you now, take the pain now. It will hurt and it will be miserable. But it will be less. Be willing to take that pain now to save yourself from greater heartache and more pain in the future and that relationship. Couples, I want to appeal to you. Sex will be a sanctuary or a source of separation. Be active. Be engaged. I know life gets crazy. I understand that. If you've got teenagers, you're welcome. We're taking them bowling this afternoon. 
You've just got yourself a nice window when church ends and before the Super Bowl begins. No need to thank us. If you've got kids, lay them down. Make them take a nap. If they start screaming, put Uptown Funk as loud as your stereo will go. I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it takes. Be sexually active. Be sexually active with your spouse. I know some of you bristle at that, and it doesn't make you feel good, and you're like, ugh, oh. You know what? Everybody else is talking about this, and God's word is not silent on it, and I'm just young enough and dumb enough that I'm not going to be either. And so I'm just telling you, if you're married, you go give your bodies to one another, and you listen to what Scripture says. And lastly, here's what I want to challenge you. If you're married, be committed. Be committed. This doesn't mean that I don't think biblically there's ever time for divorce. I, listen, I think biblically divorce is permissible sometimes, but I never want to see it happen. Why? Because even when it's biblically permissible, it still just rips people to shreds. And I don't want that for you. So what I want for you is what God wants for you. And I want you just to be committed. And maybe you're like, Brian, I'm here and and I'm divorced. What I want to challenge you to do is look at your life. Look Look at the reason for your divorce and ask, is it permissible for me to, to proceed in this way? And if the answer is yes, then be cautious. But if the answer is no, then embrace the role that God has for you. And that, at the end of the day, is where we all need to find ourselves. Embracing the role that God has for us. Whether it's single, widowed, divorced, engaged, or married. God, I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us honor you in our relationships. Give us wisdom. In your name we pray. Amen. I just want to leave you with this. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. You're welcome. God bless you guys. We'll see you later.